Welcome to Wizardist. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 18, the first episode of 2018. I've taken the past couple weeks off to um, take a little break over the holidays, get organized, um, but we are back on track with our new episode every two weeks schedule. Some amazing guests coming up over the coming weeks. This year, in 2018, I'm really looking to take the podcast a step further and to really think about growing the audience, making it a more serious endeavor. You know, this podcast was launched um, a little over a year ago, and the pacing at the beginning was sort of sporadic. Then we got on this two-week schedule. You know, to publish 17 episodes uh, where they're at least an hour long, the longest episode I think is two hours and 40 minutes with Blake Harris, one of my absolute uh, favorites so far. It's really been an incredible experience. First of all, I just want to thank you for listening and for being here. And as always, if you are interested in supporting the podcast, there are some very easy ways to do that. You can uh, leave reviews and ratings on iTunes. You can tell your friends, which is uh, the best way to sort of spread the word about these things. You can follow me on Twitter at Paul Canetti. And of course, subscribe so that you know uh, as soon as new episodes hit the airwaves or the internet waves or whatever we're working with here. Today's guest is Avani Agarwal. She is a UX designer at uh, a little company called Google. Google, as you know, is Google. But the work that Avani works on specifically is um, around UX relating to some of Google's social good initiatives. And so, for instance, if there's a big world event, some sort of disaster, and you're out on Google.com searching about it, um, or sometimes even not searching about it, and there are sort of alerts or calls to action or things that you can do, information that you can get about those disasters and things you can do to help, Those are the products that she's working with. Huge reach, just an insane amount of impact as far as the volume of people that are exposed to the stuff she's working on and also impact in the sense that uh, these things have real world consequences and are bringing about real world change and real world good through the design decisions that uh, she and her team are making every day pretty fascinating stuff. Um, We get deep into the sort of world of UX, um, her career. She also is the co-founder of a company called Stature. Uh, Check it out, staturenyc.com. It's an online store for petite women to find uh, clothing and shoes and all sorts of apparel that uh, really fit them perfectly. And before coming to Google, Avani worked at Yahoo, another company you may have heard of, um, as an art director for yahoo.com. And uh, we get into the work she did there and the differences between Yahoo and Google and what she's working on. It was awesome just to get another UX designer in the room. And we definitely nerded out pretty hard on design. And uh, it was a lot of fun. One quick note is that this podcast was recorded uh, first thing in the morning here at the Maz offices, and 
unlike uh, my normal recordings that I try to do in the evenings when things are nice and quiet, at some point you start to hear some background noise, which is the rest of the team sort of shuffling in. I think it was a Monday morning even. Uh, and so uh, you may hear some noise in the background. We do have a little studio here. It's not completely soundproof. So apologies for that. But, uh, you know, you, you may be able to overhear some top secret Maz conversations happening in the background. So without further ado, uh, I will give you this episode. Thanks again for listening. And here is to a great year ahead. Could not think of a better guest to kick off the year with than Avani Agarwal, UX designer at Google. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I I warn you, this is the first morning podcast I've ever recorded. Bright and early. Yes. Are you typically like a morning person? Uh, I'm not a morning person, but I've been forced to become one. So from you know five a.m. onward, I'm now a morning person. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah that uh, that tends to happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but your natural state would be more of like a night owl situation. Oh, absolutely a night owl. And the problem is that I'm I continue to be a night owl. Mm. So <laughs> do you get like super creative like late? Like do you like start to have ideas and stuff and then you're like, "Oh, but unfortunately I need to go brush my teeth and go to bed exactly. now." Exactly. Yeah, I do. Um and I feel like my entire work life, actually even in school, I was always, you know, getting going around like 9.30 or something at night and going into the wee hours. So yeah, yep. that's when I'm... I'm the same way. Yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, it, you just sort of force yourself, you know. But I actually find it interesting because, and I don't know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like it used to be that sort of creativity or, you know, the, the best ideas would just sort of come whenever and then... Right. Like in college, like I was, I didn't have anywhere to be. So like whenever it happened to strike, I was just like, cool. Like now's a great time. Yeah. I'm um, going to write it down or I'm going to perform. And, and now I feel like I've, I've sort of grown the muscle or whatever, which is to sit down and be like, I have three hours right now. Okay. Brain, like come up with some cool stuff because this is the time I've got. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, um, there's the guardrails are almost uh, a better way of dealing with it because I kind of tell myself after that at that three hour mark I need to have something whether it's like an in process thing or a final something um, I have to I have to perform is kind of how I look at it right I wonder if that's what it's like to be an athlete or something yeah. which I'm not would be, familiar I'd with. like to think of myself as a, a mental a athlete, athlete. <laughs> yeah um, the coolest kinds <laughs> um, but right it's like it's like I don't know I'm like feel tired and whatever and then it's like okay I have a basketball game now like and yeah. I'm in the NBA I guess I have to go play and you know I have to figure out how to get this button to get clicked more than <laughs> right. than ever before. Right. What should the radius be on this rectangle? Exactly. <laughs> um, so you seem to live many lives. Correct. Um, which which we'll we'll get into, but um, you know, on your LinkedIn it says UX designer. 
Correct. Which seems kind of straightforward, unless you actually know anything about user experience. And then that begs the question, like, well, what specifically? Because that's a really big thing in itself. But even going back earlier in your career and your education, did you study UX? Like, was that a thing when you were in school? Or is that a, a sort of path that you found? I, th- well, it it was sort of a thing in school, but I think it was just in its kind of uh, beginning stages as an official space. So, um, you know, I was reading Edward Tufte and kind of getting into that mindset because I was interested in the way that uh, people think um, and human-computer interaction kind of stuff. But really, I think that... Um, this just developed over time. I found my path uh, through just kind of working at uh, the various different companies and sort of working on the user problem and just being attracted to what causes people to kind of interface with the computer interface is such an awful word to use. But uh, yeah, I found myself sort of waking up one day and being like, oh, I guess this is, this is called UX. Who knew? I, uh, in my class, I, I start every semester by saying that I'm like, you know, this class has only been offered for the last like two years. And before that, I guarantee there people were doing user experience. They just didn't call it that completely. And, and I actually should like try to look this up, but like, I wonder, you know, if it's five years, 10 years, like whenever it started to sort of creep into at least the techie vocabulary, but like long before that people we're creating great experiences for users. Yeah, exactly. Whatever they called it. Right. Know. Or product yeah. designers or visual communication. Or, yeah. Right. Or just like good products. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, like, and they didn't think that hard about, about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as your day job, yeah. <laughs> your main gig at Google, what sort of on the UX spectrum, like where do you spend most of your time? So I am working in a sort of a a newer developing area, which is really focused around crisis response. And so I spend a lot of the time right now just running experiments. We are trying to just really get a sense of what how the user will respond to various triggers, what triggers the user. Um, And I think this is an age old question about what gets the user to donate, what kind of pulls at the heartstrings, but really it's about just making sure um, that the mechanism when they're ready to donate is, is front and center. So I'm spending most of my day working with engineers and not just like moving a button around the you know the real estate of the screen but just kind of getting an understanding of why a user noticed something or what was the user's intent when they were searching for uh you know hurricane maria or something like that and are they willing to go that extra step and donate or volunteer 
Um, so yes, I guess the, the short answer is I spend most of my day running experiments. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, a, like a mad scientist. Right. Right. A, that is doing amazing social good. It's, it's pretty... social good is the space. Yeah. That yeah, we work in. Yeah. It's not the worst kind of science experiments to do. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, and you mentioned working with engineers. Yes. And so I think a lot of non-designers think of sort of software engineering and software design in the broad sense, really being like two separate disciplines. Mm -hmm. But for those that are sort of in the mix, it is a lot fuzzier. Very fuzzy. Than that. So maybe you can just speak to that a little bit. Yeah, sure. and, And your team, as a specific example, but also more generally, like how do you sort of see the role between the two? Well, it's interesting. Um, I recently attended uh, this talk at Google called uh, UXE, so that's UX Engineering. And it was pretty eye-opening because what the idea behind it, or the, you know, the main focus was to bring UX thinking into engineering and vice versa. So uh, like an integrative way of problem solving which means that the line is extremely fuzzy and they're recognizing it uh, more and more. I sit with engineers. I actually don't sit with other designers day to day. And we are kind of leaning over the wall constantly and looking to each other to to track um, the way something is built. And, you know, really trying to get especially when you're in experiment mode, trying to get the best outcome as quickly as possible and then going back and iterating. So I think iteration is the big word here. When you work alongside engineers who are actually building the product and you're the UX designer, you can have control over the amount of iterating that happens and actually put words to it, such as, oh, this... This particular micro experiment we ran didn't really um, give us the response that we expected. Why is that? Uh, oh, this product just doesn't work. That's usually not the answer. It's usually many, many factors. And I think UX bridges that gap. So like interpreting that data yes. when you get it back. Yes. And then, you know, of course, working with a, a whole host of other folks like UX researchers and um, coming up and changing language with a UX writer. So it's, it's as you said, UX is a huge space. It's funny. It's, I'm almost thinking of like on TV, you know, pre-internet, like if you wanted to get someone to donate to like UNICEF or whatever, I mean, those are, you know, famously would go to like big marketing agencies. That's right. To put yeah. together those campaigns to figure out how to tug at those heartstrings. And so it's interesting to think about almost like the marketing angle yeah. to what you're doing as well. Like obviously the copy, the visuals, like how do you sort of draw someone in? Yeah. I mean, that's where things get tricky because um, you're working on user intent. And I, I don't know if there's a like a residual backlash from the days of yore when, you know, you had sad faces on the screen versus now where you, you know, you rely on visuals and marketing, but you also just rely on the pure sort of need for a user to search something and um, 
want to see that intent carried through. Well, it's so much more targeted. Yeah, exactly. In other words, if someone is searching for Hurricane Maria, it's like, okay, well, like this pretty specific group of people. And then I would imagine as the search drills down, yep. if someone's like, how do I donate to Hurricane Maria? You're like, okay, well, this is a pretty hot lead. Yeah, you exactly. Like, That's so direct. <laughs> That's like the gold standard <laughs> right. Right. of user intent. Yeah. And so when you talk about collecting this data, this is these are live experiments like out in the world or are you working with like sample users or, you know, hired sort of Actually, it's people. it's both. It's a mix of both. Um, for some things where we're really just testing the waters, we'll do it in a really closed environment. And for other things, we are putting it out there and seeing what what the reaction is. So do you get the data really fast? I'm just trying to think yeah. of like how many jazillion people are like Googling yeah. at any given second. So you just like flip the switch, like count, you know, like 30 seconds and then flip it off and you're like, let's look at the Let's data. see what happened. Yeah. You know, um, there, yeah, there is actually a mix of that. You can definitely see the type of uh, reaction something is getting on a page. You don't necessarily know who or where or what, you know, it's coming from in, in that type of a turnaround, but you get a sense of, of reaction. I was just thinking about... The, what you were saying a second ago about sort of the marketing stuff and like just in general, it's funny to think about like labeling a button. Yeah. You know, <laughs> is it submit? Is it, you know, next? Is it go? Is it whatever? And, and is like, I think of that as like a designy thing, but then it's sort of marketing. It's such a, yeah, that's like, a great question. Just, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm suddenly thinking of every interface that like I've ever seen and being like, wait, like someone had to write all the copy. Um, yeah. And and it, it matters. It matters. It it matters, and it it falls away. It, you know, they always say good design is something that you don't think about, and it just kind of happens seamlessly, and it kind of mimics your behavior, or it it creates a pattern for you. Um, but yeah, the, it's interesting. We we talk about the terminology on, let's say, something like a donate button or send or um, versus email versus, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and there's a, there's a decent amount of thought that goes into it. And it's not just a cosmetic kind of thought. It's not just, oh, we want it to sound punchy or we want it to be um, bright red and flashing. But really, like, wh- how, does it, how, how does the user respond to uh, this button? Is, are we being bossy? Are we being... Um, too passive. Um, so it really, it matters. There's a lot that goes into it. Right. And are you sort of presenting it as a neutral option or are you, are you, you know, you're using the term bossy, but I'm thinking <laughs> almost like I would read it as like almost like a guilt trip or like, like too heavy handed. Exactly. It's like, are you going to do nothing or are you going to donate right yeah, now? You know, exactly. it's like, like, you know, and with, especially like, with something that's like probably donate. like effective. Oh yeah. So I would assume the data doesn't always necessarily give you the right answer. But then you because, have to distill. Yeah, there must be some sort of, I don't know if ethical is putting it too strongly, but like there's some determination that needs to be made about like, well, even though that's working, like it's a little manipulative. Yeah. Manipulative. <laughs> so maybe we should dial it back, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Or do you um, not care? Because it's like if they're donating, it's like, okay. Well, once you, so that's the thing, that's the beauty of 
intent versus not, you know, if they, if you come upon something that's asking you to donate when you weren't in the headspace to do it, um, that's the, that's that soft area that you're trying to really trigger versus someone who is just looking to donate. Right. If they're they're going to donate anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, who are the swing voters here? Exactly. I was about to say that you took it out. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly it. Um, and it's interesting too. I, there's so much study around creating forms and getting you know, getting capturing information from the user, and in a in a space like um, donation or you know one that is kind of you could always flip flop and and not fill out the information. One of the things that we've noticed is, and I, I mean not just me, it's kind of across the board that if you prematurely kind of put a, a red alert on a form to, hey, you forgot to fill this thing out, the user actually does feel like you're yelling at them. Uh, And, you know, you have to be really systematic about when you alert the user about certain steps in the process uh, versus just kind of uh, sitting back, having them fill all the information out and then yelling at them after. (laughs) And so there's all sorts of little... Right, so there's like enough sunk cost at that point that they're not going to abandon or something. Exactly. And sometimes they will, in fact. Like, why didn't you tell me earlier? Why didn't you nudge me along versus... I'm I'm thinking of all the forms I've designed that that yell at the user. Yeah, exactly. No, well, (laughs) it's true. I mean, my favorite is when I'm trying to capture that, like, get that airfare. uh, And suddenly (laughs) I get this, like... You did this, this, this right. wrong, and you've lost the fare. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah. Or like concert tickets, there's like literally a timer, like, and no. it's like you misspelled your zip code, idiot. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Like, why um, didn't you tell me earlier? Versus, you know, I was about to fill that out. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. I'm definitely guilty of this, but like, I feel like part of it is that um, designers sort of design like the optimal version first so it's like you you create the form and then at some point down the line you're like oh wait there needs to be like error validation yeah like there you know and it's always sort of thrown in yeah and for instance i just thought of this but i kind of want to go back and change everything i've ever done we're like (laughs) like what if okay so let's say there's like a three page like a three-step you know form and then you're right you wait until the end because there's an error validation on the first page yeah like instead of making the user go back, could it just pop up and say like, by the way, like, you know, th- whatever, can't find your mailing address. Can you just enter it here? Like Exactly. You know, like, yeah. And I've never seen a single form that does that. There was, I, I actually, I'm, I'm forgetting, uh, like I had this great form experience. I sound like <laughs> such a nerd. <laughs> Where it we was, prefer the term mental athlete. Yes, exactly. Mental athlete. Um, but where it, if you sort of, if you went to a field that below a field that you forgot to fill out, okay. it would gently nudge you and in its, in its cues. So it had suddenly that form space became green. So you just kind of knew that you forgot to fill that part of it out. And, you know, you went back in and green is certainly nicer than red. Yeah. And, you know, it had other more sort of aggressive ways of calling out when you didn't fill something out. But it was all these gentle sort of really like hand-holding kind of 
moments in my in that form experience and i i will try to think of it yeah hopefully before we're done speaking sounds today. like a great form it was just the best form oh man <laughs> um well or sometimes you'll see you know cute little animations like it'll shake or like mm-hmm. you know something that that again feels almost like cute instead yeah. of patronizing exactly yeah you know like are you a Mr. or a Miss? It's like, <laughs> I don't want to be either. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, um, the, the data collection thing is super interesting. And um, when I think about this iterative process that you were referring to, it must be that sort of healthy mix of like, okay, well, this is the data. This is my own intuition. This is, you know, whatever. Um, the interpretation of the data, which obviously could go a million different ways. Mm-hmm. But then... In other words, when you are making those design decisions, how much the initial, you know, theory that you're testing in your experiment is sort of from your mind or from some, you know, previous data maybe or or whatever. But then once you start the iteration process, do you just sort of trust the data always? Like once, you know, once you set it live and you say, okay, like that didn't work, um, let's try this that didn't work, let's try this. Or do are there cases where sometimes the data tells you one thing and you're like, no, like I just know that that is not why or that's, you know what I mean? That's a great uh, question. Actually, um, I, I will tell you. So I used to be on the marketing side, so creative direction and, and working with uh, big brands and having switched over to... Uh, you know, the UX and Eng side, or switching back rather to that side, I'm reminded about the idea of iteration and following the data. But at the same time, intuition is, is a huge factor. And it's hard sometimes when you're in a territory that you don't know well, where you don't actually have that much intuition. So you're you're having to rely on data as some kind of information point. Um, yeah, I've definitely had instances where I'm designing and I'm thinking, yeah, I know the data is saying that the you know clicks aren't going to ha- or the user is not going to be interested in this type of content. But I, I really think they are. I really think that it's not getting to the right user. Um, and, and that turns out to be true for a number of factors. It could be that we're serving up some information to, to folks at the wrong time of day or, you know, the, some event has occurred in their life, or, you know, it, globally or something that is not allowing them to see certain information. But I really think it's relevant um, but when it's unknown territory, I, I actually do rely on data a bit. And that's hard for me because coming from the sort of the creative direction side, you're, you're w- working with intuition so much more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a healthy mix. I think when, when you're doing this kind of work and you're, you, you really are dealing with some things that you didn't know. And I've definitely had my hand slapped, you know, by, to, by myself thinking, oh, no, it's definitely going to turn out this way. And then looking at the, f- the beginning product and the end state and realizing how different or how varied the, the spread really was. 
the uh, the creative side, you know, brand side that you're referring to, it's almost, in my experience, like willful ignorance of yeah, the data. Totally. You know, you put yeah. it so kindly. I don't know exactly what you said. You know, you're like, it's trusting your intuition. I'm like, yeah. I don't, is it? It's like, willful <laughs> ignorance. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, because they, you know, there's just such a belief in in the brand itself. And this is what we're trying to say. It's about us, us, us. Yeah. And proper sort of user data and, and research and the iterative process you're talking about is is really just about coming from the other side. It's like, well, it doesn't kind of matter what we think because let's yeah. actually look and, and see the results, you know. Um, and it's actually really liberating, I will tell you, to to let go and watch those, you know, mini sort of not failures, but um, sort of misconceptions come alive and, and be like, oh, I need to let this go. How many users need to use something for you to feel like in the in not in this sort of internal little like pre-experiments, but like when you when you put something out in the world, what's like a meaningful data set that's for a, you? That's a great question. Uh, well, so we were just discussing this on the fly and, and this is not to be looked at as a as like a, you know, carved in stone kind of thing. Um, but in order to really start to get a feel for whether something is successful you know in my in many experiments we say maybe a thousand users will kind of indicate some sort of pattern in in some way but really we're looking at a million users and really getting a sense of whether something is successful based on those kinds of numbers it's much higher than million even um, but we're, you know, the reach is so wide and depending on the markets that we're working with, if it's a U.S. market or a global market, uh, we're looking in, into the millions. That scale yeah. is just... It's crazy. It is crazy. I, it's the, hard for me to wrap my head around That's it. the right word. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So this is the point of the podcast where I inevitably ask my guest, will robots replace you? <laughs> Um, what and, do you mean? And so, what do you mean? Oh my God. Um, and so, you know, Google talks about being an AI company and that's the future of, of the business and whatever. And so that can mean so many different things. And I think most people think of that as like, you know, some robot that follows you around like Rosie from the Jetsons yeah, or something, totally. you know, Google home with, with arms and legs. Um, <laughs> but of course it, it's much deeper than that. And when we're talking about analyzing huge sets of data to make decisions yeah like huh that sounds like something that ai would be really good at and and you know could you have you know uh, this big sort of training set of data feeding into a machine learning system that um unlike you wouldn't you know mistakenly run a test on a monday morning yeah and and get a, a false negative because it has so much data that it knows the peak time for donations or and it has all the historical data of every, you know, disaster that's ever happened and how similar is this one to that one and and pulls it up right and away. theoretically even to the individual person like what is this person or people like this, you know, what are their tendencies, what have they done in the past? <laughs> Everything ever. So does that play a role currently and and should it and and in that scenario if and when that happens like then what role does the human designer have if at all 
Um, so it is happening. <laughs> I'm not, you know, an AI expert at not even not even a tiny bit. But what's interesting is watching some of the inform or the studies that Google is doing and just kind of uh, being a voyeur into this world of AI. Uh, well, for one, I think that the for now at least I would use the word assistive and and sort of a co co-author uh, versus it taking over the human designer in the end who knows what's going to happen we're going to be you know operating off of asimov's <laughs> laws of robotics but um for now it's actually really helpful and and you see it happening with you know all the experiments around echo and and google home and alexa just beginning to be able to communicate with you uh, in a way that seems a little more colloquial and serving up or, or asking sub questions that kind of steer you in the direction of information that you're looking for. Is it, again, a, you know, a machine, machine learning eliminates the, the emotional aspect so you can be a little bit more objective and you can, a no means multiple things versus, you know, a yes or a maybe. And I do think that AI is able to kind of capture that and start steering you in a different direction. Like, oh, I think, you know, if if I say to uh, an assistive software, hey, I'm looking for something to donate to, and it's able to really kind of go back in the catalog of things that you've ever donated to or knows a bit about you, in, you know, because you're logged in, it might serve up charities around children and education versus um, water, you know, purification or something else. But I do think for now it feels more like an assistant. Pretty soon I'm, you know, it's going to be way more than that. <laughs> well, right, because I can imagine, okay, so let's take like Google Assistant. So you're sitting there, you're wondering if you should, again, just to pick a trivial sort of example, but, you know, Hey Google, should I move the button from the right to the left, like, or should I leave it on the right? And then says, you know, well, like, I think you should put it on the left. And you're like, okay, cool. Like that was that was a great assistant move there, you know. <laughs> and then you can imagine asking it, you know, instead of once, asking it every day, and then every hour, and totally. then every minute, and then you don't need to ask it because it's just giving you the response, right, left, left, right, 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 left, totally, left, left, and then it's yeah. doing it every nanosecond and using all the real-time data, and then it's like, why am I here? Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> like, I'm going to just move it for you. <laughs> right. It's not allowed to be moved five right. pixels that way. And, and so I think a lot about optimization problems as being this things that yeah. that AI or machine learning or whatever that can can solve for. But then optimization is generally only one part of a yeah. problem. And I think know? that I, I think you actually uh, explained it way better than than no, my no, my lack of morning <laughs> brain. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think where where AI right now seems to be extremely beneficial and a designer's best friend would be through something like optimization. I would love it if 
in the process of designing something, I have this, you know, almost auto function that puts the button and we're talking about button. Yeah, I know yeah, we're joking, but yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, I would love it if there were some, some rules in place or reminders that tell you if you actually put this particular, you know, uh, asset over here, it's going to perform better. It's going to be viewed better because we've done a ton of experiments and the human eye always goes to the right versus the left. Or, you know, when you're in a different country, because the user reads a certain way, it's going to move that way. Um, or even dealing with kind of language optimization issues. Like I wish I didn't have to go look that up and really account for it. And there was something assistive that could help me design better. Um, so in that way, I I think it is, it's only gonna get better and better and it's going to be a helpful uh, tool until the moment, of course, when it says, this is dumb, you're not allowed to do this anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, in general, I still there is this idea that the intent is hard to capture from AI entirely. The human intent is somewhat still floppy that you can't quite put it into um, a sort of predictable, entirely predictable data set. Right, right. Especially when you're talking about things like trying to really solicit empathy yeah. and, you know, sort of the most human-y type of things. things. Yeah, um, and empathy is just, I mean, a lot of people are trying to work on that world of empathy metrics. Yeah. But it's it's a little bit of a, not even little, it's a pretty fuzzy area. Well, the weird thing about machine learning, and then, and then I promise we'll move on to less <laughs> robotic topics, but... Um, but is that you might not even know the reason. So like, in other words, oh, I'm doing this because people's eyes always go to the right. Yeah. The weirdest thing I think, and again, I'm, I'm not a, a machine learning engineer myself, but I, I, I read a lot about it mm -hmm. is that even the people that built the original algorithms don't actually know why it, you know, it's, it's purely results driven. So it's like, yeah. we got more people to click on the button. You're like, oh, how'd you do it? And it's like, does not compute. Yeah. Like, you know, and you're like, what do you mean? Like, like tell me, what, what did you do? What was the secret? Right. And it's like, it's like, does it matter? Like, I got you, I got your, your clicks. I'm it, out. Yeah. You know? like, like, mic drop. Yeah. yeah exactly. Totally. Exactly. Which is so um, unsatisfying as a designer, yeah. you know, like I, when something works, I think part of the, the pleasure of the process is understanding why it worked and what got you there and the sort of design thinking that led to that successful decision and and the the approach there is almost the opposite it's like totally results driven as long as it works you don't need to know and in fact it, it might be impossible to find out yeah it's true um you know there's that the age-old design problem where you have a button that's bright red and there's a sign over it that says do not push this and <laughs> you'll you know you'll get a ton of uh clicks and <laughs> versus something that's green and friendly and you know says please push this and people are like whatever um i mean the intent is so hard to capture sometimes and the end result is really all that you know matters um 
So yeah, and I, especially when it comes to stuff like, again, empathy-related tracking, it's, it's a really hard thing to understand. And we, we look at some of the metrics. I'm sure that everybody has noticed when you are, let's say, signing into Gmail or some other uh, platform, you'll get that sort of smiley face to sad face uh, you know, option of how satisfied you are. And sometimes those are really important. And sometimes it's like, I actually didn't even think of this as a satisfaction, uh, you know, gesture. I don't know why I'm being asked about this information. And what do we do with that information? Like, you know, this is based purely on emotion. And it, I could just be cranky that day and I'm dissatisfied with everything that I'm doing. Right. And I was this, having a good time until you asked me about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, so what do I, what does this mean? I, it's hard to, to actually attach meaning to some of this stuff. So speaking of intent, moving backwards in your career a little bit, um, and you alluded to it, but your time at Yahoo. Yeah. That oh, seemed like yeah. totally different different role different different situation but still the idea i would imagine is you know when working with brands is to figure out like how to affect the intent or at least identify intent etc um so what was that role like and what what do you see as sort of the through line if any so i uh i worked uh in ux on the front page of yahoo so very high profile although maybe less so now, uh, and, you know, really, which is true even now at Google or anywhere that's search-driven, the trough or the search area was God. And everything around it was, you know, something that you could experiment with for the user, but you could not get anywhere near that sort of search space. That was the thing that was left untouched. Anything near, uh, you know, the buttons or any mechanism that interfered was hands off. Um, But what I did was probably one of the more sort of obnoxious bits of designing in terms of, uh, you know, activating the, the, the Yahoo search page to show ads popping up from you know, the left to the right and all over and still managing to get the content that's, you know, been paid for or news to to be left untouched. Um, fortunately, I feel like we don't sort of operate in that way as the Internet of Things, but the, the through line definitely had to do with still keeping the user in mind, believe it or not, and designing for... Uh, the information the user is looking for. So, you know, Yahoo had a pattern of behaviors that it was known for that that the user loved. You know, there was a ton of content on the page. You could still search, you still can. Um, but, you know, this was information that the user wanted to see. It wasn't necessarily a, a clean slate and a search bar. And uh, working with that versus now that there is still some similarity and and a lot of folks obviously you know um worked on both sets of behaviors uh through time it was it was a different kind of problem it was up 
upfront about wanting to make its money uh, from advertising. And that was kind of a different scenario. Yeah. And so the company goal is clear. And then it's sort of like, how does it still fit into what the user is doing? Exactly. The company goal is absolutely clear and um, really, you know, tracking everything about whether the user is going to click this uh, movie trailer versus, you know, something about insurance. It, it, it just depended on when you captured the, the user's interest and who the user actually was. Yahoo.com is always interesting to me because unlike Google.com, which was the sort of clean, yeah. you know, <laughs> pristine page, it, it was like a search page, but then also like a media property. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so the media side, Yahoo News and weather and sports and whatever, like monetizing that like a, a news site sort of makes sense. But then you also had the search piece. Yeah. And that must have just been a weird and interesting sort of like dichotomy between the two kind of like, what is this? Oh, yeah. And well, it, it's funny because for a long time, that's how everything was. You had multiple needs met on one page, sort of, or tabs. And then we, while being a designer at Yahoo, you watch this evolution of things become more simplified and directed. And of course, you know, Apple was there doing, leading the charge in terms of really identifying an intent uh, or a need from the user and then going, you know, beelining you towards uh, the most simple gestures. But yeah, with Yahoo, it was sort of like, I don't want to use the word schizophrenic, but it was it was multiple things um, at once on the page. And when you're designing, you're, you're, you do feel that need to just clear the palette completely and start fresh and just say, hey, why can't we just have um, this one action versus sticking ads in every little segment of the page. And we referred to them as mantles. So it was the, you know, the West and the East mantles coming, interacting with one another. Why not we just, I prefer to design a full takeover ad that's clean and doesn't interact or get in the way of the news that's that's laying behind it. But yeah, it was, um, it was, it was very interesting to, to, to work with this company that had started its grassroots in search and was very quickly becoming everything else but that. The analogy on the Google side is maybe like YouTube.com. Yeah, correct. You know? Yeah, that's the best. Yeah. Um, I, would, I mean, I would it's not exactly, but like that is a busy, complex page that's trying to shove all sorts of stuff at you. It has, it has you know ad units there it has like, absolutely you know um it's it's almost the opposite of the google.com landing page yeah exactly. no it's true and you know youtube is is just such an interesting space altogether and obviously it was a trendsetter i mean it, it created this world uh but yeah it's funny how when you're working with outside brands which is what i did in my former life they, their approach to a YouTube page was very different from, let's say, 
just the average YouTube, you know, yeah. uh, screen. Right. Um, but yeah, that that reminds me often of of my days at Yahoo. Yeah, and. Obviously, most of the work you're doing was desktop based, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, or all of it. entirely. And then um, I, we were in the midst of transitioning to tablet, which ooh, was yeah. really cool. Right, which yeah. is a stepping stone because then when you get to mobile, it's like you don't have an east and a west mantle no. anymore. There's none of that, you know. Yeah, um, it's it's a completely different world, and I and I love it. <laughs> I love how focused uh, the the real estate is on meeting your needs or or actively not meeting your needs it just it's a very clear small amount of space and it needs to get the function across to the user right away the other thing i really like about working in mobile is besides the sort of space constraints visually that we're talking about intent like when someone takes out their phone to me there's a higher chance that th- there's some purpose there. Exactly. Whereas the computer, I mean, yes, there's still a purpose, but there's also a lot of just like, I'm at my computer, I'm bored, I'm just going to like do stuff. I mean, obviously people take their phones out because they're bored too, so it doesn't always work. But like the why yeah. of, of why is someone doing this seems to be in a majority of cases like a little more clear on mobile yeah, than on desktop. I, I think so, and I also think that just you know, the fact that you can only see one sort of screen at a time versus what usually is happening on my desktop, which, you know, which has hundreds of tabs opened. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're like a crazy multitasker. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I feel like we're all, you know, in this day and age, we all are doing that. But when you're dealing with sort of a couple different aspects of uh, that are involved in solving a problem in front of you, it's Looking at my screen is a nightmare. <laughs> I, I, you can't tell. Yeah, I, everything, exactly. Everything is hidden behind this one window, but <laughs> but if you look what, behind the scenes, what monsters lurk? Exactly. Uh, it's like this window has been open for two years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read a funny tweet this weekend that was like, when I accidentally close like my browser window, I never restore tabs. Yeah. Like what's lost is lost. That's and I'm, you know what I mean? Like, was, and I was like, yes, yes. Yes. Like, like it's a natural cleansing. It happens. And you know what? I will have to look up. Right. Right. What if it was really important was. to me, I'm going to come back to it. <laughs> totally. Know? I love that. Yeah. That's um, amazing. I need to put that up. As a sticky. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and the worst is when you have sticky notes uh, on your computer. Like I'm like talking about physical sticky notes. Sticky oh, notes. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. what My is that? Does that? Yeah. I can't. Like why? There's also stickies on your desktop which they've kind of depreciated. Yes, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Virtual and and physical. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so moving into your other life or one of your other lives, sure. stature. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about this seems like you have pretty demanding uh, career as it is, and yet you've managed to throw in another element here. Yeah. Um, so maybe tell us a bit about it and how is it going, and and then ultimately what I'm interested in is you know as a as a startup founder now, yeah, who doesn't have sort of the backing of a Yahoo or a Google, yeah, <laughs> you know, and instead of working on one very specific area you sort of have to do everything like what sort of carries over and what is is what was surprising so um i am you might not be able to tell from my voice but i am five feet tall and i 
have had my entire life a very hard time finding clothes. And as any petite person can tell you, it's it's a juggle between, you know, the kids' section, the junior section, and something like a petite sophisticate, which is definitely furthest from my wardrobe as possible. So I started a company with uh, my co-founder, Camille Moroz, um, which focuses, she's also five feet tall. We joke that together we're taller than 10 feet. Um, but um, it's called Stature, and uh, the focus is on working with uh, well-beloved indie designers and getting them to scale their uh, apparel down to a, a more of a petite spec. Um, in a way, this this I approach this as a kind of like a product conversation where you are taking a shirt and you're kind of working with a user and and keeping them in mind and seeing how how literally it's scalable. Um, and I have air quotes up for that. Um, <laughs> but the challenges are that it you know fashion is fickle and uh, you're trying to figure out a way to also reach those users that are five feet tall or five four and under is technically what's petite. Um, and so there's a couple things I don't even know. My mind is like swirling. Um, the the crossover or the the stuff that I used in my previous life that is very relevant now is still the user's needs. And that is actually, it's, it's kind of a neat thing to work with something that's tangible and you have to wear uh, it. And Must be different than working with software. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, in, I do have some experience with fashion from the past. I worked with uh, children's clothing for a long time. Uh, one of the brands I worked with is this... Uh, Swedish children's clothing company called Polarno Pirette, which is uh, a brand that is extremely user-driven. It's it's meant for children, and it's meant to be really durable, functional, and uh, close the gap between different segments of, of age and growth spurts. So it feels only, um, I guess natural for me to then move into a space that deals with this funny sort of uh, sizing gap that exists in in the fashion world. Um, and the things that I find surprising are the limitations around just manufacturing and, um, you know, scalability in, in, in fashion. And if your if your user is a specific spec and you have a manufacturing sort of layout that works with a different spec it's really hard to almost like stop the presses and change it and keep things from getting cost prohibitive on on the you know designer side or the middleman side to get it to the user. The logistics are are mind-boggling because by comparison, you know, um, okay, we're, we're getting some feedback. I mean, whether explicitly or, or implicitly, that the user prefers this, and then you sit down for a couple hours with an engineer and you make exactly. the tweak and you throw it out. And then here, it's like 
okay, like the sleeve is too long. Like, so what's involved here? It's like, oh, well, just a few weeks yeah. from now, you should have a prototype. You know, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's, it's real, it's in real life kind of stuff where you have to then pivot after you get the information back. Oh, well, you know, this didn't sell. So now we have several units sitting there that are not going to move. And what do we do with that? Do we, we try to be mindful and use what we have if it means we change the spec a little bit to to work for a different body type we do that but you know in the end it's really per season specific issues that right. that arise and it's fashion versus you know just purely the internet of things like utility exactly right. yeah the uh i would imagine that on the business side too i mean the great thing about software is that it's fairly fixed cost. Yeah. I mean, whatever, keeping the server infrastructure going, but that's not like a concern of, of yours, let's say, yeah. in your role at Google. Um, but in other words, like we're going to spend a certain amount of time up front, but then it's sort of infinitely scalable exactly. from there. Yeah. And here, right, if you're left with inventory that you can't Move. sell, like there's real costs associated with creating that. There's costs associated with storing it. There's like... All of it. Everything has a price tag. <laughs> and, um, you know, even even the returning back to a specific designer and telling them, hey, we need to change the spec. I mean, there's there's a cost related to that. And so just so I understand it correctly, basically, you're working with these designers. You're sort of advocating for the five, four and under crowd. Yep. And getting them to create new lines that then are featured on your site. That's correct. And it's in some cases, what we try to do is keep keep, you know, uh, the spread limited per designer of the things that we would like to customize for the stature customer. Um, and also the designer tells you, hey, listen, I can customize this pant more easily than I can customize this dress. And so we work with them. Um, what's interesting is a lot of designers are are not large or tall women uh and so so they might be your customer they they're actually kind of our customer and you know they are five four and under and they know what the woes are and we try to design from you know double zero all the way through um you know size 14 if and at some point hopefully more um but yeah it's it's an interesting dialogue that we have with these different designers and we don't do our we don't manufacture so we work with a lot of designers who manufacture in new york otherwise you know globally and um and are these things available exclusively through you guys yes so it's it's pretty interesting so in other words you are essentially a direct-to-consumer brand that has you know uh clothing that is unique to that brand but you're not actually designing and manufacturing it. So it almost is like you're like a marketplace. A marketplace, yeah. That's you know? right. Yeah, we are. And, you know, we, we're trying to tackle, uh, for now, you know, the the shoe and clothing space that's, it, you know, where somebody that is a size five shoe has a hard time finding uh, what they're looking for and someone who is you know, five, two and 
generally a size, let's say, medium in, in regular spec, but wants to be able to scale that down so that it fits them more correctly. Uh, that's that's the universe we're living in. And then down the road, maybe it's going to be broader than that. Maybe it's going to be, you know, taking on uh, other challenges that petites, uh, you know, shorter statured women. Right. Face. So it's really about sort of creating a, almost like a lifestyle brand yep. around. And I mean, it sounds like a huge market to me. Like it's a that, huge market. I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. It's sort of unbelievable to me that that until now they haven't been properly served. Like, exactly. That's crazy. Well, yeah, it's funny. I, uh, my partner and I joke about how we were walking around uh, Tokyo when we first really started to come up with uh, words to this issue. Um, but, you know, we were walking around and on average, uh, the Japanese customer, customer is shorter. And so it was a little bit of a dreamy experience for Camille and I walking into a store and having at least a sensibility that clothing is supposed to fit this way versus that way. Uh, and I, first of all, I love Tokyo, but also I had, <laughs> I had a similar clothing experience. I'm I'm not under 5'4", but I'm just really skinny. Yeah, yeah. And the average man in Tokyo has a build much more similar to me yeah. than the average man in the U.S., where everything's sort of like boxy and totally. you know, baggy and... And um, like I, you know, generally, whenever I try on anything, I feel like a dad from the '90s. You know, like that. <laughs> totally. And and yeah. and in Japan, like even just like a normal store, a normal shirt, normal pair of pants. I'm like, hey, wait a minute, like this. Like I actually, can work with this. Fits me. Yeah. Know? No, and that's what was interesting. Um, you know, everybody's different, and we're not in a custom tailored world. We can't we can't do made to order kind of stuff, but this at least gets a little bit closer and it closes the gap a little bit that is there throughout. I mean, you know, when it comes to hems, just bringing them up by a couple inches, even if you have to do a little more custom work on your own, this gets you there closer or it's already there. It gets there. you much closer. Yeah, exactly. A good fit. When in the world do you have time to do this? You're also a mother of two. <laughs> yeah. You work at Google. You're running this business. It's, I don't have time, actually. Um, you know, we, my partner and I have a, a great relationship and agreement about, you know, workload. I'm very strict about, um, you know, dividing the time that I have, uh, or at least as much as I can be where it blurs is when you have a kid wake up at midnight with hives all over them or something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, my day, you know, my day job and my sort of night shift are very clearly separated. And because uh, fashion is cyclical in a different way, at least I've, I'm beginning to identify when I'm going to have to do heavy lifting. Right. So it becomes and, a little predictable, the ebbs and flows. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And so do you approach it as sort of like, this is happening in the margins whenever I have time? Or are you the sort of person that, that sort of almost sets aside work hours? I have to set aside work hours. That's the only way. Otherwise, I feel like um, I would actually never have time. Because, you know, the work I do at Google is, is a constant thing. And if I wanted to, I could go home and continue to work on it. And I do oftentimes. But if I, you know, give myself, let's say, that three-hour chunk that's dedicated to something else, I try to stick to it. Otherwise, everything blurs into a big soup. And that's when I think 
productivity just comes to a crashing halt and I'm not able to do anything. So yeah, I try to really have defined time and, you know, every now and then it kind of goes beyond what I expected and the creativity is flowing in a certain way and it'll take over the time I had allotted for something else. But mostly I try to stick to it. It's hard. Yeah, really hard. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, So the last thing I wanted to ask you about was actually getting back to Google. Yeah. And it's something we talked about when we got coffee, actually, so I hope you don't mind me asking again. Sure. Is something that I think about a lot is how um, UX, more than being a job function, Mm -hmm. if done correctly, is more sort of at the organizational level where each and every employee, and it's interesting to hear you talk about UXE. I actually heard of that term Mm -hmm. before. Um, where you know the engineers are sort of being empowered with that same user-focused ethos, um, then of course you know you and 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 you know your equivalents throughout all the different departments are the most sort of explicit yeah. representation. And then you have the sales and marketing side. And you have you know basically mm-hmm. everyone in this huge huge company. And in the end, the goal I would imagine is that there's sort of a unified feeling as a user right on the other side yeah. of the fence as a customer that it feels like Google. Yeah. Right. It seems like a googly thing. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know if you even go a level above that with alphabet. You yeah. Know, if right. I'm using a nest product or eventually a Waymo, you know, self-driving car, or I'm using Google sheets. Yeah. Like, should those all feel the same? That, 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 that I don't know. <laughs> yeah. let's, but let's just say even within, you know, Google, mm-hmm. uh, how how does that work? You know, do you feel like there there is some? I don't even know what the the noun is. You know, but but some sort of structure or instruction that lets everybody sort of know like how to, how to make this all feel like the same thing. I mean, how many people work at Google? Oh man, I I mean, in New York alone, I feel like it's it's over five k maybe just here. maybe more. Yeah, so, I mean, right. And then you just globally, I, I, we're getting into many many thousands. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm. Let me let me try to understand the question. Sorry, yeah. No, I no. Rambling. I think um, the question is maybe around how integrated is UX and UX thinking in the sort of overall strategy of creating products and um, you know working with the user as the uh, from the outside in I think one of the things that we talked about initially um, over coffee was this idea that the approach to UX is changing across the board I do think Google is sort of not you know at the forefront of this in terms of integrating uh, UX strategy from the get. So it UX is now not just sort of um, like a flash word kind of a thing, but something that's integral in creating products. Thinking about uh, how the user is going to look at a, a problem and how they'll want to solve it. Uh, Google is looking at it from the very beginning of the design thinking that goes into making something. Um, I I feel like there's a, a lot more to be done in that world. I 
it used to be that you design something, you see how the user deals with it, and then you kind of tack on solutions. And, you know, you kind of keep tacking on more solutions. But in the end, you're so far away from what the user actually wanted. Or you were so close and you could have done a, you know, a pivot and you would have answered the question. Uh, but now I think it's it's very much part of the uh, the germination of an idea to have UX strategy on board and, and coming up with what really is going to meet a need. And it also helps you to identify whether something is even necessary. Uh, so, you know, we, we live in a world of multiple apps and multiple little fixes or, or funny little solutions to things that aren't real problems um, necessarily. And I think UX helps kind of identify what's a real need versus what's kind of more playful. and Right. Or, or on the sort of internal side, it's like, this is just cool. Yeah, exactly. So let's do it. Yeah. Versus like, hey, this is actually identifying a problem and coming up with a solution. Again, I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, all of the things that are out there are one of two things, uh, you know, necessary versus cool versus some of those things really do intersect, but I do think UX is 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 way more of an important role in in everything actually, you know. It I think it it um, seeps into everything that we design and produce and is there some explicit guide to how to do that in a google way or is just creating things for that the user needs enough of an ethos in itself um that's actually a really good question i feel like experience design is is overall it's an ethos type of thing at Google, there is some strategy behind how to do it and how to really decide on what things are going to be sort of, you know, carried through to the the finished product versus things that we kind of integrate into many products. Uh, I don't know if this is quite the answer. I feel like I, I lost my train of thought a little bit, but no, but that's um, interesting, right? Because yeah. I would imagine. Right. How do you know if this is a feature on existing products exactly. or if this needs to sort of branch off? Into something else and, you know, really got, see it to its end. Um, but that there are ways that Google focuses on experience design and being an experienced designer as a whole. Research, you know, language, all of it um, that are specific to Google. But, you know, they I would say that it's because it's becomes such a recognized strategy throughout product in general. It's something that is kind of part of the ethos. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much for starting your week with me. Thank you. Yeah, uh, this is awesome. I know. I'm, I'm feeling all like jacked up. I want to go. Yeah, and, like, I want to go make some forms. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Like, in fact, I actually am going to go work on a form right go now. I'm do all my air validation yeah. right now. Exactly. Uh, I'm not yelling at you. Yeah. I'm just massaging the experience. Exactly. <laughs> just giving you a helpful hint. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, seriously, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
thanks for listening to this first episode of 2018. And I will see you in two weeks.